0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. So the first article we're going to cover today is looking at vitamin D and a little bit away from the sort of performance nutrition. This one's looking at older Australian adults. And I suppose the reason for doing that is it's the kind of big enough study that occasionally people might ask about it. So I think it's useful just to be aware of some of the kind of good things and bad things about it. So this was a, a big old whack of vitamin D, 60,000 units per month in Australians who are 60 years or older. Uh, and the, the they said, look, this hasn't changed uh, or cause mortality. And so uh, let's q- sort of question, is vitamin D useful? Now, uh, the first thing, and I suppose, I don't know how correct this is in, in an assumption, but, uh, what would the vitamin D levels be in older Australians in a place where there tends to be more sun compared to my patients uh, in the north of Yorkshire? And so whilst uh, previous studies, um, not maybe not as big, have shown a mortality benefit, this one didn't, but my patients aren't that old and they don't live in Australia, so... It's not going to be something I'm going to be making any changes with. Um, And I suppose all all it does is if people don't want to take vitamin C and feel they get enough through sunshine, maybe it's reassuring for them. The name of it was uh, the D-Health trial, a randomized controlled trial of the effect of vitamin D on mortality uh, and the uh, first author Neil, last author Waterhouse. Uh, the next one, uh, moving away from something where we're sort of starting to get a good feel on all the different sort of data that's there, and whilst so we don't really quite understand, essentially because it's a hormone, it's impossible to almost understand vit- how vitamin D works. We start to get a feel for who needs it and where it might be useful. The, the next one was going on something where there's, there's very little data on, and whilst it's, it's occasionally been um, pushed as maybe a way for the future, it, it was about algae and where, where does algae supplementation sit within the kind of exercise performance field. And this was a Frontiers in Nutrition article. It was called Algae Supplementation for Exercise Performance, Current Perspectives and Future Directions for Spirulina and Corella. And if, I think if you had asked me before, I would have said, um, if a patient wants to take it and there's, there's no contaminants, it's not going to do any harm, but there's no real large studies that show that it's particularly effective. Um, maybe small studies and animal models and cell models showing that might have a impact on uh, oxidative stress biomarkers. And essentially, this is a, a nice research uh, paper, um, just a summary of the current uh, data and evidence just saying much that same sort of thing there are reports that it may be beneficial for all sorts of things um i suppose in my head it it does it fit within the uh whey and protein supplements because it is mostly protein although there are some other useful uh things in there as well vitamins um and and other bits so uh and what what they were saying in this is we need a bit more of a breakdown in who might it be useful for, a bit more of an idea about how it might work, rather than just this or oh, might be antioxidant, uh, and and essentially a lot of work to be done. Um, they do mention and say that there is an ergogenic potential, and mostly looking at sort of submaximal repeated sprint cycling. Um, so if someone wants to take it. Um, Certainly, I'm not going to stop them. If they say to me, should I or should I take something else, um, I think I'll probably still at the moment be leaning more towards uh, more traditional things. The next one. Uh, so this was a meta-analysis of some cohort studies in the uh, BM uh, BJSM, so British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was called Muscle Strengthening Activities are Associated with a Lower Risk and Mortality in Major Non-Communicable Diseases, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis of Cohort Studies. And the reason I brought this up is, again, almost just that kind of someone might ask about it, you'll see it in the papers and think, "What on earth is going on there. So what they were talking about is they they feel and they feel they showed a a J-shaped curve where if you do very very little exercise you're more likely to sort of die from all cause mortality in a number of different sort of breakdowns of non communicable diseases if you do 30 to 60 minutes a week uh that that drops however beyond that there might be an increase so uh, like a lot of uh meta analysis especially of cohort studies i'm not really too sure what i can take away from this because how do you start to control for such a wide age group? So it's just 18 and over who didn't have severe health conditions. Uh, how do you control for such a sort of a wide range group where there are going to be some elements that uh, lead to to increase mortality? Out, How do you control for the confounders? Uh, and I don't know. And I don't think they told me how they did it. Um does it fall into this idea that actually maybe uh high end sport isn't very healthy for you and and that then falls back to the kind of uh, being an elite athlete is it healthy for you actually is it going to um make you more likely to get other conditions in in the kind of the initial one which we all I'm, I suppose I'm starting to feel feels more and more likely as if you consume a very high uh carbohydrate uh diets a very high carbohydrate based calorie diet for a number of years is that going to make you more likely to get some of this uh, fatty changes around your liver and an earlier development of your metabolic syndrome etc and i think that's probably true I- i'm not sure this adds to it it's almost too big and too um too woolly um and so moving on to uh some something slightly different now and i think i, I- a little bit of a move away from things that I found uh, very difficult to take much from to, uh, to be honest, some things where it was almost, there's almost too much information to really, really kind of get get your head around. So this was, uh, again, just looking at, uh, so this was immunology and this was to do with the microbiome. And what caught my eye on this was it basically was talking about a a noted difference between high-income countries and low-income countries in how responsive people are to vaccines. Now, what they were saying was could this be linked to their microbiome because there is felt to be a broad brush difference in the microbiota between high-income countries and low-income countries. Now we generally sort of say, oh, that there's increased diversity in lower and middle-income countries and uh, uh, lower lower diversity in high-income countries. And we don't like using good or bad in the microbiome, but that's that's often the kind of knee-jerk, oh, okay, high-income countries, there's a, a bad microbiome. What on earth would this have to do with... Um, your vaccine response and why is this impacting your vaccine response so i think what they're starting to look and think is actually in these lower diversity um microbiomes that we see in high-income countries your immune system's almost primed um and expecting and seeing a, a more damage and so when you have an oral vaccine it's primed to respond to it um, where does this fit in for uh, our guys? I suppose the question would be, um, is there anything we can be doing to improve athletes' responses to vaccination? What does this mean for microbiome? Is it sort of questioning the sort of where I suppose we've all started being going, which is actually prebiotics, increased diversity are going to be a good thing. I, I don't think it does. I think it just highlights a slight quirk of uh, immunology and rea- reactivity to vaccinations and that we react better to vaccines when our immune systems are primed and ready to go so it's uh, called modulation of immune responses to vaccination by the microbiota implications and potential mechanisms first author lynn last author polandendron and it was in nature reviews immunology and now moving on to what what I thought was probably the most interesting article I'd seen this week, and I think this probably sits in the middle ground between um, pure sort of science and trying to figure out how, like that last one and how that translates to us, uh, and stuff like the spirulina, which is much more well should I should I recommend that to my athletes now instead of some whey protein or not? So this was called Cordavali. Chordovirale's bacteriophages are associated with improved executive function and memory in flies, mice, and humans. And it was in cells, host, and microbe. Uh, First author, Mayanis Perex, Last author, Fernandez Real. And what this was looking at was the virome. Uh, So we're, we're all getting pretty comfy with this idea of the microbiome. And we all talk about the bacteria and your good bacteria. And and when quite commonly we forget to mention about your fungus and your good fungus. And even more commonly talk about your viruses and your good viruses. And in particular, what we're talking about here are the bacteriophages. Now, what are they? Um most of you will be able to bring up a picture of them when I say they're the little ones that look like spaceships landing on the moon or like lunar landing modules. Um, So they are viruses that only infect bacteria. They don't infect human cells. And there is a war, that's probably millennia old, going on between bacteriophages and bacteria. And so what people have started to look at is to say, well, we know your microbiome can have all these different impacts from when we take it out of you and put it in a rat and watch it do something. But um, what impacts that microbiome? And initially we've said, well, probiotics, prebiotics, maybe the sorts of training you do, there's a few different things. But is that... those viruses that are there as well your virome and the bacteriophages they are also having an impact on your microbiome and therefore having an impact on what your bacteria in the microbiome are doing and that's the kind of the key thing isn't it well what are they doing those bacteria in your gut what what's their functional effect what are these little chemicals they're making and how do they impact you So this was looking at what groups of bacteriophages might have an impact on. And they were specifically looking in mice and androsophilia at uh, sort of memory um, tests. And to, to kind of... Sort of summarize, what they found is that subjects with increased cordoviralis and Cifidoviridae levels in the gut microbiome had better performance in executive processes and, and verbal memory, um, whereas microviridae levels were linked to impairment of those executive abilities. And the study that they'd done was taking uh, microbiota from human donors uh, and sticking it in mice and um The other one was uh, supplementing some fruit fly diet. So animal studies, a long way off human studies, but this is going to be the next thing we're going to start be seeing. It's not going to be good enough to say the probiotic and your microbiome. We're also going to have to be saying, actually there's something else that's impacting it. It's bacteriophages. And are they going to be an area of development? Because I imagine this is far more attractive than probiotics to drug companies because the bacteriophage research is already going on it's it's in some parts of the world pretty pretty well advanced and it's just going to be developing um it's so that it can be sellable and i think that'll be easier than than specific uh, sort of fecal transplants or anything which would would otherwise be the kind of more realistic option than uh, sort of probiotics until we get good enough to do uh, sort of personalized probiotics well that's the last of mine uh for today i hope you've managed to get some good training in today and i will catch you soon thanks very much